For journalists all over the world, reporting true crime stories is a day-to-day reality. But what do journalists do when that reality is so dark that it feels like we've reached a new depth of human cruelty? For the first time, a network of 600 of these journalists have invited us into the darkest recesses of their world. They've shared stories of some of the most disturbing cases ever reported, past and present. From Podomo and Vespucci, this is The Darkness Vaults. A note to listeners. Due to the nature of their subject matter, some stories discuss suicide, sexual assault, and may include detailed descriptions of violence. Please take care while listening. Death in the chat room. On a cold night in March 2008, 18-year-old Nadia Kajuji sat down at the laptop in her dorm room. With a few quick keystrokes, she navigated to the forum and found her long-time chat partner, Cami D, was online. I'm planning to attempt this Sunday, Nadia wrote. There was a bridge across the Rideau River, not far from her dormitory at Carleton University in Ottawa, the capital of Canada. The river was still frozen, but things were just beginning to warm up, so the layer of ice was fragile. I want it to look like an accident, she wrote. The water is really rough right now, and it should carry me back under the ice, so I can't really come up for air. Cami wasn't pleased, but her problem wasn't that Nadia was expressing suicidal thoughts. It was that they hadn't agreed about jumping off a bridge. Most people puss out before jumping, Cami replied. Plus... They don't want to leave a terribly messy mess for others to clean up. Hanging yourself, on the other hand, was fast and definite. As Cami explained, just place the knot behind your left ear with the rope under your chin and across the carotid artery. In 10 seconds, you're unconscious. Then your brain dies from lack of oxygen. Then all your organs shut down and you're gone. I can help you with the cam when you need to, Cami wrote. But Nadia's mind was made up. A few days after her last chat with Cami, she sent an email to some friends saying she was going skating on the river and she never returned. When Nadia went missing, her dorm room was searched and people began to worry that this wasn't just a skating accident. She'd left her wallet and cell phone, taking just her skates, her jacket and her ID card as if already picturing herself as the corpse she would become, a body in need of identification. It took more than a month for the river to thaw and relinquish the body. They found Nadia downstream from the bridge. The hard current of the river had stripped her body, but her skates were still on, the laces tight. Back in Nadia's dorm room, her laptop sat on her desk. No one paid it any attention. Nadia was born in Brompton, not far from Toronto, and moved to Ottawa for university. In high school, she once shadowed a member of parliament, and the experience inspired a passion for politics. 
She was smart and pretty and motivated, and managed to get accepted to Carleton University's exclusive public affairs and policy management program. She wanted to become a lawyer, and perhaps, one day, a politician. But not long after moving into her dormitory, something started to unravel in Nadia. She'd always been sensitive, sometimes writing emotive poems about her turbulent interior world. Her eyes were ringed with a dark gothic mascara, and she wore tank tops with the face of Jim Morrison, the lead singer of The Doors, who'd had his own death wish, pursuing a life of hard drinking, drugs and violence. That was just fashion, but in Ottawa, away from her family, Nadia encountered problems that she just didn't know how to fix. She fell passionately in love with the young man. One night, the condom broke, and when the morning after pill failed to work, she found herself pregnant. The news sent Nadia into a panic and caused a crisis of conscience. Should she abort the baby? She had her whole life ahead of her. But just as she was reconciling herself to the idea of keeping the baby, she suffered a miscarriage. And when she reached out to the father of the child for emotional support, suddenly he wanted nothing to do with her, as if the whole ordeal had made her dirty, untouchable. Nadia had never been treated like this. She'd never been so alone. At the same time, it was one of the worst winters in Ottawa history. A city with a long record of brutal winter weather. The wind howls through the valley and eats into your skin. And as the days shorten and the temperature plunges, people are driven deeper indoors, deeper into themselves. Night after night, Nadia wallowed in her misfortune. She watched the soundless snow outside and how it buried everything. Sometimes she tried externalizing her problems by recording a video diary on her webcam. But pretty soon, even the diary couldn't give her any release. I can barely string together a cohesive sentence or two, she said in one of her final entries. Words were breaking down. She was discovering a place where language ends and silence begins. Only in the chats with her online friend Cami did she still find a way to speak her heart. When the thought of suicide first occurred to her, Nadia started searching online and came across a forum that helped people find the best method. The forum wasn't pro-suicide exactly, but unlike most religions which see suicide as sinful, the forum prided itself on being non-judgmental. They referred to suicide as catching the bus. Who knows how many people on the forum were really serious anyway? Sometimes just talking about your fantasy has a way of dispelling it. To anyone reading the forum, there might not be any difference between a post by a desperate person like Nadia and a post by someone with no intention of harming themselves. But Nadia wasn't fooling around. This wasn't a game or a fantasy. By the time she started chatting with users of the forum, she had a plan. That crack in the ice was like a chasm in her mind, sucking everything below the surface into the raging, murderous water. All she wanted was to be released from the prison of her feelings. On the forum, Nadia found support. 
if not the kind of support she really needed. One user in particular shared Nadia's single-minded intensity. Her name was Cammy. She was a 31-year-old nurse who'd been depressed for a long time and intended to kill herself. But first, she decided to help other lost souls on their journey to the other side. After all, as a nurse, she understood how to mitigate pain and suffering. Soon she and Nadia were chatting regularly. They discussed every facet of their suicide plans, making sure every detail was perfect. But Cammy didn't approve of Nadia's plan. I can help you with it, Cammy said. She urged Nadia to turn on her webcam on the day of the suicide so she could have the benefit of a qualified nurse to talk her through the hanging. But Nadia was adamant. Like an artistic inspiration, she could clearly envision her death. Besides, it was pretty difficult to make hanging yourself look accidental. And as if slightly ashamed of her own need to die, Nadia wanted it to look like an accident just an unlucky skater who fell through the ice. When she disappeared in March, no one retraced her steps online. They didn't find the forum or the chats with Cammy, and so Cammy never knew what happened. One day, Nadia was there, and then suddenly she was gone, as if she stepped outside and caught a bus. On an overcast afternoon, a few months before Nadia's suicide, a retired teacher sat down at her computer in Wiltshire, England. Her name was Celia Blay. She was 65 years old and she was obsessed with horse carriages. In fact, one of her side jobs was making the long whips that carriage drivers use to keep their horses on the move. Celia was curious about the medieval history of her area so she started searching around online. She considered herself computer illiterate, and so she wasn't prepared for where her search took her. When it comes to an internet rabbit hole, we usually remember the first thing we searched for. But the second and the third, and how on earth they ever got connected, is hard to reconstruct. Somehow, we find ourselves in the centre of a labyrinth, with no idea how we arrived. And that's what happened to Celia. Click by click, her search about the streets of Wiltshire led her to the suicide forum. She was horrified. Celia felt strongly about suicide. These people needed counselling and support, not to be instructed in the best techniques. She forgot all about her original search and joined the forum, determined to intervene in the lives of the most desperate users before it was too late. One of these users was a 17-year-old who lived in South America. The girl had been sexually abused and felt she'd come to the end. The pain was too great. She would do anything to escape. Thankfully, the girl said, she'd found an ally here on the forum. Her name was Li Dao, a Chinese-American nurse who was also depressed and planning to end her life. But before she caught the bus, Li would help the girl commit suicide by hanging. 
All the girl had to do was turn on her webcam, and Lee would instruct her on the best place to do it. She would be there for the girl in her final moments, a friendly, soothing presence on the screen. And then Lee would kill herself as well. We're going to watch each other by webcam, the girl told Celia. Celia couldn't believe what she was hearing. Someone who'd taken an oath to do no harm was now advising a teenage girl to end her life. You can debate for a long time on the morality of euthanasia, allowing terminally ill people to end their lives themselves, but surely there was no debate in this case. This was a 17-year-old victim of abuse. She needed help. Celia implored her young friend to reconsider the pact, gradually chipping away at her resolution, one chat message at a time. Finally, the girl agreed to seek counselling and her life was saved. But a new obsession had taken hold of Celia. Who was this mysterious Lee Dow? It turned out that the depressed nurse was very active on the forum. A user named Halfjacket once posted, Please someone help me die some way that is quick. I'll do anything. Please, I just need help. Another user named Jim wrote, Think I'm going to be left with no other option. And still, another user wrote, I need to die, tonight, period. To all three users, Lee Dow had replied, Check your email. It looked as if Lee Dow worked just as hard to end lives as Celia worked to save them, and she'd been doing it for years. But not everyone on the forum was convinced that the nurse's intentions were so selfless. Some users had come to suspect that Lee Dow might be messing with their heads. Back in 2006, Lee spent months and months chatting with a user. Each message was like a transmission from the blackest pit of depression. Lee and the user made a suicide pact, but though the user tried to hang himself, it wasn't as pain-free as Lee advertised, and he struggled out of the knot, saving himself. And then one day, Lee stopped answering his messages. He posted on the forum telling her to get in touch, and other users chimed in saying Lee had stopped responding to their chats as well. On a forum about suicide, when a user goes dark, it usually means the worst. And that seemed to be confirmed the next day, when the user received a message from Lee's mother. That morning, her mother said, Lee had been found hanging in the basement. The news was devastating. An outsider like 65-year-old Celia Blay might perceive Lee as a reckless monster, a traitor to her profession. But many people on the forum had come to see her as an angel of mercy. She was always helpful and attentive and kind. She really seemed to care. Many users were touched by Lee's ardent Christian faith. The hope of eternal life is promised to those who believe, she wrote. The users of the forum powerfully felt her loss. And then, two months later, Lee suddenly resurfaced. 
A user said they'd been chatting with her and that she'd repeatedly urged him to hang himself. Now the forum split into two opposing camps. Some people believed Lee was dead and this new user was an imposter. Others believed the whole disappearance had been staged and Lee had been a liar the whole time. As one user wrote, Lee Dao gets some kind of high or rush from trying to convince people to die. Back in Wiltshire, Celia Blay followed this story with appalled fascination. She'd been lucky to save the girl in South America. How many times had Lee Dao slipped into a desperate user's private chat and taught them how to hang themselves? Celia started asking around the forum about Lee, and that's when she received a message from a woman named Elaine Dryborough. Elaine wanted Celia to know what had happened to her son. Mark Dryborough always had energy. The young man from Coventry, England, was studying computer engineering in university, and he could keep coding for hours on end, as if fatigue just didn't exist. In the social scene at school, Mark was outgoing, friendly, and curious about other people. With his rakish smile and bright, lively eyes, it wasn't hard to see why he got a girlfriend so quickly. But right when everything was lining up for Mark, his girlfriend came down with a viral infection, and he contracted it as well. It didn't seem like a big deal at first, but while his girlfriend soon recovered and was herself again, Mark's return to health was slow and incomplete. In fact, he never really felt as if he recovered. The relationship dissolved, he lost interest in his studies, and the once energetic young man never felt fully awake, like a day on which the sun never rises. As his twenties became his thirties, he lived in a perpetual gloom. Mark came to believe he had chronic fatigue syndrome, but maddeningly, he never received a proper diagnosis. The world seemed to be denying him everything, even an answer to what was plaguing him. Not long ago, Mark would seize each day with fresh enthusiasm. Now, he felt himself on the rack of time, each second pulling him apart with agony. At the age of 31, Mark suffered a nervous breakdown. That's when he found the suicide forum. He registered an account with the username Spooky and wrote a post. Does anyone have details of hanging methods? A reply soon came back. Check your email. It was none other than Lee Dow. Hanging is by far the best and surest method, she told him. It is the method I am using. If he turned on his webcam, she would help him do it painlessly. And then she would hang herself as well. The nurse's messages were like a warm, calming hand reaching out across the expanse of the internet. All would be well. Mark had nothing to fear. It was the summer of 2005 that Mark made plans with his sister Carol to meet for a walk in the park. She arrived at the appointed hour, but Mark didn't show up. Something wasn't right. They'd confirmed their plans that very morning. 
Carol got in her car and drove to Mark's place. On the door, she found a note in capital letters. Please call the police, it said. Do not go upstairs. Carol didn't obey the command. She took the stairs three at a time, only to find the door to Mark's room blocked. She slammed against it, inching it forward, and forced her way in. That's where she found him. The door had been blocked because he'd used it to prop up a ladder and hung himself. Carol called for help and held him up, hoping she hadn't waited too long in the park. Maybe it wasn't too late. But though she stood there, supporting her brother's weight until the paramedics arrived, he was gone. When Carol finally brought herself to face the emptiness of Mark's bedroom, she logged into his computer. It turned out the suicide wasn't spur of the moment. He'd been thinking about it for a long time, meticulously planning his death. And he'd had help. In fact, on the day he died, he'd been chatting with someone named Lee Dow. When Mark's mother told Celia Blay the story of his death, Celia knew for certain that Lee Dow was a fraud. Lee had made a suicide pact with Mark, and he'd actually gone through with it, but the nurse didn't uphold her end of the bargain. Once Mark was gone, she continued to haunt the forums, initiating private chats with anyone who seemed on the brink of suicide. But why? And why did she always insist upon hanging? The only way to find out was to set a trap. Her name was Cat Lowe, a 35-year-old from Wolverhampton, England. For a while, Cat had been using heroin to self-medicate her depression. But even the opiate eventually stopped working the darkness breaking through the cracks in her high. She started frequenting the forum and was soon contacted by Lee Dow, who wanted Kat to know about the many benefits of hanging. But unlike some of her more susceptible chat partners, Kat sensed something off about Lee's story. She contacted Celia and said she would work undercover to find out everything she could. In January 2008, Kat sent an email to Lee, saying she was looking for a good place to swing. Weirdly, the response she received wasn't from Lee Dow, but from someone identifying herself as Cammy D. But the message was the same. Cammy told Kat to get 3.5 metres of nylon rope, 3 centimetres thick, and find a firm place in her apartment. I think you said you have a webcam, Cammy wrote. That would help a lot too. Once they established a regular chat, Kat started teasing out details from Cammy about her past activities on the forum. Cammy had told the forum that she'd watched people die, and Kat asked if she ever worried about getting caught. It happened just once, Cammy told her. He asked me to watch as he was all alone. I didn't want to, thinking it was some perverted ploy of his. But after many hours of talking, I agreed and watched him die, so he would not die alone. Cammy wasn't worried, she said. 
because she would soon be dead as well. Personal question, Cat wrote. Did he get a stiffy when he died? Probably, but he had pants on, Cammy said. He hung from a door. Was he young? Cat asked. Cammy replied, he was 32. That was Mark Dreiber's age when his sister found him on the ladder. Cat and Cammy made a pact. They would both hang themselves together. For music, Cammy wrote, I'm having the song on Eagle's Wings played. Being highly Christian, I want spiritual songs played for my journey to heaven. Now, another man joined Celia's fight. Robert Griffin was a retired Australian businessman who'd come to the forum during his own struggle with depression. Somehow, finding a community of people on the brink of suicide helped him work through his issues, and he pulled back from the edge of the very darkest void. The experience left him wanting to help people in need, and he recognised Li Dao, or Kami, or whatever other name she might be using, as a terrible danger. Robert had worked in telecommunications, and he managed to track down the server that was sending Lee's messages. It was a small city called Fairbow, in the state of Minnesota in America. And then, to everyone's surprise, Lee made two big mistakes. The first was with the undercover user Cat Lowe. Cat had been encouraging Lee to speak on webcam, but Lee kept making excuses saying the technology was malfunctioning. But one day, the camera suddenly switched on, and what Kat saw didn't make any sense. On the other side of the screen was a middle-aged white guy. He had a fat, square face and a high forehead with some flat grey hair. But before Kat could see him clearly and imprint his image on her mind, the camera switched off and the picture went dark. The second mistake was even bigger. As if juggling too many aliases and unable to keep them straight, an email purportedly from Lee Dow came instead with the name of a man. William Melkert Dinkle. When Celia searched for the name, she discovered the existence of a man based in Fairborough, Minnesota, but while Celia might have attracted a crack squad of internet sleuths to help unmask Lee Dow, her story failed to attract any interest from the police. She gathered up all her information and took it to investigators at Scotland Yard, but they didn't even see it as a crime. It was just a bunch of lonely, pathetic nerds chatting online. If it bothers you, one of the officers told her, just look the other way. When Celia insisted that they take her seriously, another officer called her husband to check whether he knew where she was, as if she were a dotty old woman, indulging in a fantasy of being a detective. Celia had no choice. She took matters into her own hands. In her career as a manufacturer of horsewhips, she'd come into contact with horse-obsessed people all across the world. She searched her address book and realised that an old friend lived in Dakota country, not far from Fairbo. Celia called her up and told her the story. 
So you're telling me a serial killer lives in the neighborhood, the friend said. The friend forwarded Celia's materials to Minnesota police, and the police paid a visit to Fairbo. The house looked perfectly normal. It had white shingles and black shutters and sat on a mint green lawn. When police knocked on the door, they were greeted by a heavy-set middle-aged man with flabby jowls, close-set grey eyes and a small, soft, babyish mouth. He was William Mulkert Dinkle, an unassuming man with a wife and two daughters. William worked as a residential nurse, attending to the needs of elderly people, and was known in the neighbourhood as a devoted father and a good Christian. In the living room, police sat William down and explained why they were there. The internet connection of this picturesque little house had been traced to a series of gruesome chats, encouraging people all over the world to kill themselves on film. William looked troubled. They were right, he said. This was the house. He couldn't deny it. One of his teenage daughters had been going through depression and found her way to the forum. She'd written some terrible things on there, William said, but that was all over now. With God's help, his daughter had come through and his family had grown stronger. The story seemed heartfelt, but police had reason not to trust William. And not just because Cat Lowe had seen his face on Lee Dow's webcam. They'd already looked into William's past as a nurse, a past that cast a shadow over the perfect suburban image he was presenting them today. The trouble began in 1994, while William was working at Ebenezer Luther Hall in Minneapolis. His superiors disciplined him for failing to report an error with one of his patients' medication, an error that could have been dangerous. That was just a small infraction, but the reprimand didn't cause him to sharpen his work. William's colleagues noticed that he had trouble absorbing information, as if words only reached him on a long delay. One patient had the toes of their left foot amputated. William was told to bandage the foot, and somehow wrapped the wrong one as if amputated toes were a subtle detail he could reasonably overlook. That sort of story became the stuff of backroom joking at the care centre. And then, William's carelessness became deadly serious. On shift one day, William failed to inform a physician about the worsening condition of one of the residents. Who knows what he thought? that the resident would simply heal as if by a miracle, but the hesitation was fatal. By the time someone else noticed the resident's condition and got him in an ambulance, he was too far gone. If they'd intervened sooner, he might have had a chance, but he died before he even reached the hospital. William bounced around after that, eventually finding work at Pleasant Manor, another rest home for the elderly. At Pleasant Manor, William's work got even sloppier and more abusive. One patient received bruises after being restrained by him, 
and the Commissioner of Health concluded that he'd physically abused two others. Police confronted William with the evidence, and the story about his teenage daughter soon broke down. Now some glimmer of recognition passed through those grey, close-set eyes, as if he knew his time had come. William called for his wife to join him and the police in the living room. He had something to tell her. For a long time now, he'd been hiding the truth from her and their daughters. When he was alone with the computer upstairs, he didn't play games or read the news. He logged into the forum, using one of his aliases, and tried talking people into suicide. It was a fetish. William's sexual desire was directed at one thing, and one thing only, to see somebody hang themselves on film. He estimated that he chatted with about 20 people and made suicide packs with about 10. Of those, he believed that five had actually killed themselves, though it was sometimes hard to tell. He loved the thrill of the chase, he said, identifying people's vulnerabilities and exploiting them, one kind message at a time. I just got into a lot of discussions, he said, talking and talking and thinking that I was being an advocate or helper or God. God indeed. This disgraced nurse could snatch your soul away just by typing on his keyboard. And did the plan ever work? Police asked. Did he ever get to watch someone hang? In his messages to Cat Lowe, he'd strongly implied that he'd watched Mark Dreiber die. But now, William went stiff. The confession was over. No, he said. He never saw a thing. Back in Ottawa, spring had come. Unshackled from its ice, the Rideau River ran freely, obscuring any trace of the tragedy of Nadia Kajuji, who'd jumped from the bridge and drowned. But her family finally had answers about what had happened. They found her chat logs with Cammie and knew Nadia wasn't quite alone in her last days on Earth. She'd been talking to a fetishist named William Melkett Dinkle. When William was asked about the lonely girl from Ottawa, he hardly even remembered her. Yes, he said, among his many chats there was a girl in Canada, but the details were hazy in his mind. As passionately as he pursued the chase, he forgot the souls he captured. He was charged in connection with the deaths of Nadia and Mark Dreiberer, who hanged himself on the ladder. The crime was outrageous, but it was also hard to prosecute. After all, William hadn't even met these people, let alone put hands on them. Can you really talk someone into suicide? And how can you tell who would have done it on their own and who needed William's last vital push over the edge? Regardless, the judge sentenced William to 360 days in prison and ordered him to return to jail on the anniversaries of Mark and Nadia's deaths every year for the next 10 years, just to remember what he'd done. But William's lawyers appealed the sentence. Just look at Nadia's chats, they said. 
As soon as she entered the forum, she was explaining in detail how she planned to kill herself. There was no real pressure from William, no real assistance. If his influence had been so strong, she would have hanged herself, not jumped from the bridge. And as for Mark Dryborough, there was no evidence to suggest that William had actually watched him die. In fact, the lawyer said all William had been doing was exercising his freedom of speech. We might not like it, we might find it disgusting, but disgusting sexual fetishes were not a crime. The Court of Appeal agreed, and William went free. Under a barrage of flashing cameras, William Melkett Dinkle, or Lee Dow, or Cammy B, walked from the courtroom, his loyal wife by his side. Unlike Mark Dryborough and unlike Nadia Kajuji, William got another chance at life. He returned with his wife to their white shingled home and closed the shutters against the day. It was dinner time and the family gathered around the table to say grace. Upstairs on the table in the office, the computer quietly waited to be switched on again, the webcam watching like an unblinking eye. From Podimo and Vespucci, this is The Darkness Vaults. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. For early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts.